0: Hello, everyone.
1: Welcome to the Ivy
0: Academy podcast, where we discuss current topics in leadership and organizations, unpack the latest research in the field, and look at trends across different settings for insights to share with our audience. My name is Mazzi Raz, and I'm the Director of Learning, Design, and Strategy at the Ivy Academy. The members and staff of the Ivy Academy acknowledge the original caretakers and storytellers of the land on which we are situated. Those are the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Arawandarun, and Luneirobek peoples. We commit to honoring and celebrating their past, present, and future. We also commit to working towards creating a just, inclusive, and vibrant community for all. We encourage you to learn more about the traditional territories of the indigenous peoples where you live, work, and play. We are excited and encouraged to host this dialogue about neurodiversity in the workplace. This is a vast, deep, and highly critical topic, one that affects all sectors, industries, segments of the society, and corners of communities. In other words, everyone. I have the distinct honor to introduce our guests and panelists today. First, we have Jose. Jose is a Business Process Intelligence Program Director at SAP and Autism at Work Ambassador. Prior to his current role, Jose was global co-lead and head of SAP Autism at Work Programme in the Americas. Jose's 30-year IT career spans private and public sectors and companies ranging from startups to 50 enterprises. During his tenure of 24 years at SAP, Jose has occupied positions in product management, consulting, development, strategy, and diversity and inclusion functions. Jose participated as panelist in the 2016 United Nations World Autism Awareness Day, testified before U.S. Congress on the global challenge of autism, spoke at National Forum on Autism held by the Senate of Mexico, and collaborated on the topic of corporate social innovation at the World Economic Forum. We also have Rob. Dr. Rob Austin is a professor of innovation and information systems and an affiliate faculty member at Harvard Medical School and Arthur School of Business and Social Sciences. Rob is a friend of mine and the author of several books and has published widely in both academic and professional journals. He is an excellent educator and a distinguished researcher. In addition to his already busy life, Rob is currently conducting research on the topic of neurodiversity at work. Last but not least, we have Dr. Erin Hiner. Erin is the Director of Culture Inclusion Ivy, where she leads EDI programming and community engagement. Erin has a deep appreciation of the collaborative and restorative approaches necessary to open spaces and work alongside equity-deserving students, staff, and faculty, and to build welcoming, and equitable communities. Erin has deep expertise in implementation science and evaluation, and has used this expertise in programming focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as gender-based violence. We are fortunate to have Erin at IV and here with us in this event. I'm especially lucky to call Erin as a friend and a co-conspirator. Um, I'd like to ask Rob to help us get started. Rob, can you tell us briefly what today's discussion is all about? Neurodiversity
1: in the workplace. How
0: can we make sense of
1: that? So I think at the heart of this topic, is a challenge, a historical challenge, where there's a large percentage of the population that has not had the opportunity to have meaningful work in their lives. Uh, One of our doctoral students, uh, Chloe Cameron, has written a little white paper where she made an effort to calculate the number. And she, worldwide, she suggested it's somewhere between 800 million and 1.4 billion who uh, have some sort of uh, difficulty with acquiring work that is not because they uh, don't have the ability to do the work. So um, that's that's at the heart of the issue. Uh, the unemployment or underemployment rate for people in this category is, is often estimated at between 80 and 90%. Uh, The good news, though, is that companies like Jose's company, SAP, are starting to do things about this. Uh, they've realized that the problem isn't really the people. It's with the business systems uh, that we use to hire and manage. And so the challenge I think we're really talking about here, it's about reformulating hiring processes and management processes so that we can mac- maximally activate the talent of not just people who identify as neurodivergent, but probably everybody in the company. So that's, I think that's at the heart of the issue.
0: Thanks Paul. That makes a lot of sense. I'd like to ask Aaron to help us with one. I think it's an important topic here. What do we mean by neurodiversity? Aaron? Many people may not actually know what we mean by that.
2: Yeah, That's a great question and a good place to start because oftentimes we use the word neurodiversity and I think traditionally most people I think have attached that possibly to thinking about autism or autism spectrum disorders, but the term neurodiversity is actually far more wide and broad than only thinking about people who may identify as having a diagnosis on the autism spectrum. So really the technical definition for neurodiversity is really a brain that functions differently than a neurotypical brain and that can be socialization, learning, mental health impacts. But to give you a sense, some of those types of disorders that are generally thought to be within uh, the umbrella term of neurodiversity are autism spectrum disorder, for sure. But things like Tourette's, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, movement tick disorders, ADHD, ADD. So you can see a really wide, wide range. And then also we can add in different types of processing disorders. So how we learn and come to understand and take in information all of those different ways of being in the world really fit under the umbrella of being neurodiverse.
0: Impressive. And thank you very much. Robin, Jose, um, have you noticed in your experience with neurodiversity, um, common misunderstandings of it uh, in workplace or within within individuals?
1: I think you know there there are some issues with um, tendencies to stereotype you know one of the things people in the in the uh, neurodivergent who identify as neurodivergent like to say is that, that if you've met one person who's neurodivergent you've met one person who's neurodivergent right we have to be careful i mean we are addressing a group of people who have uh, characteristics that have prevented them from being uh, hired or have masked their ability let's say which are sometimes very formidable. But we do also, I think, have to be careful not to lump everybody into one category. The The people who identify as neurodivergent are as diverse as everyone else. So um, I'd say that's one. Jose? Uh, yeah,
3: absolutely. So I, I think that there's the definition itself also of, of neurodiversity, I, I think that Aaron alluded to a bi- wide variety of characteristics. I think that ADHD, you know, autism, dyspraxia, dyslexia, and some others are part of it, but I've heard people talk about left-handedness as part of being... Uh, part yeah. of neurodiversity. I think as we evolve the topic uh, over the years, it's going to have a crisper definition. But I think that you made an excellent point, Rob. And if you know one person who is neurodivergent, you know one person who is neurodivergent. In, in one of the, the trainings that we provide at SAP for managers, we talk about, well, our program is Autism at Work, where we have a, a purposely uh, defined program to hire individuals who are on the autism spectrum. And part of that training tries to provide sensitivity to the managers. And one of the areas of sensitivity precisely that every individual is as unique as everybody else, neurodivergent or not. And the example that I tried to give him is if you find uh, 15 things that define autism, it could be, for example, uh, sensitivity to light or literal interpretation of things. Let's assume for a moment that there's 15 things. And let's assume for another moment that there's four of those traits that any individual can have at any moment in time. You can have as many as 1,400 combinations and it would be completely unfair and inaccurate to lump everybody in one category and define them as a group of people and provide them with the accommodations and the needs, address the needs in a very monolithic environment. So spot on 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 that thought.
0: Thank you both Rob and Jose. This this makes a lot of sense. Jose, you've been talking about um, neurodiversity as a program inside SAP. What is the genesis behind the program that you have at SAP? How did it come
3: about? I, I think that we need to, to start in 2013. 2013 is when the official launch of the program was uh, was announced. It, it is a global program at SAP. Today, the program, just to give our audience an idea as to what the footprint of the Please. program is, we are in, in 16 countries. We uh, have provided approximately 600 opportunities for individuals on the autism spectrum. When we talk about opportunities, we talk about educational opportunities for individuals uh, who might be in their student years, high school and college, all the way to full-time and part-time employment for individuals. And right in the middle, we have internships and we have contracting opportunities as well. So again, 16 countries, we have approximately 30 different types of roles where we employ folks on the spectrum. These are not roles that were pre-identified for people on the autism spectrum. These are roles where we had a need in the company and we just happened to find an exceptional talent to fill that role who happen to be on the autism spectrum. So we don't have a, a predefined set of roles for autistic people in the company, you apply because you have the talents, and you're given opportunity because you have the talent. So the program today is 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 in 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 those locations, and, and that is the general footprint. I, I think that one of the most salient points about the program is the area of sustainability. Over the last six seven years, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about that in the next hour. But yeah, this is the general the general um, the footprint of our program.
0: Thank you. Uh, do you recall in 2013 what dialogues were taking shape that gave birth to this idea, to this program?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that we had the, like every other company out there, particularly in the high tech space, there is a a perceived shortage of talent. And I want to qualify that as perceived shortage of talent. I believe that if we are looking to certain profiles of individuals and we have our blinders on, and we say this is the type of talent that I need in my company. Yes, there is going to be a war for talent. Yes, there's going to be a shortage of talent. But if we open those blinders just a little bit and look in the periphery, we're going to find exceptional talent that we had not considered that before. And that's precisely the motivation for the at Work program. How can we tap into that underutilized source of talent that is abundant in that it hasn't had an opportunity? Rob was mentioning eighty plus percent unemployment. These are the people that live in the periphery, but we also need to acknowledge that innovation comes from the edges, from the people precisely that don't look at the world in the same way as everybody else does. And this really was a huge motivation for us to start out the smart work as well.
0: Erin earlier on you mentioned a, a phrase or the term neurotypical. Do you think this is what um Jose is talking about? This is very narrow definition of of talent that fits in a very square box of typicality.
2: I think if we trace even the idea of some somebody being or presenting themselves as neurotypical, the data that would have presented that would have been the mean or median of a bunch of different data points. And so that's actually really, really a very narrow set of characteristics that anyone could at any time map themselves to. Even within the neurotypical brain, I think it's as diverse as the neurodivergent brain because how you express what is considered to be neurotypical, again, intersects with your life course, with the type of life you've had, the life experiences you've had, the education you've You've had all of those different layers play a role in how we perceive and act in the world. Really, I think at the base of it, we all have neurodivergency within how our brains work. For some people, they sit in, as Jose said, as outliers within that median of data we use to map our recruitment pathways. What we said was leadership, what we said meant, you know, working within proper modalities in work. But when you think about all the people that got cut out of that, you really have lost, like Jose said, this, this access to a very, very innovative, very committed, very diverse set of individuals. And it's for that reason we have to shift both in post-secondary education and also then within workforce, how we think about who and and how we deliver our programming.
0: Thank you, I'd like to get back to this uh, part of this dialogue at some point that why is it that the idea of neurotypical or this very narrow definition of what talent means for organization has actually been so prevalent and for a very long time has been the the standard of hiring and the standard of development inside the organization. So I think it it would be good, actually, we can come back to this a little bit later. This is raising an interesting question. From a point of view of a professor of management, Rob, I mean, you've been studying how organizations function, how they actually can function better. From from that point of view, how do programs like what Jose is talking about, Autism at Work, benefit
1: organizations? Uh, I think there's a lot of ways. One of them, Jose has already mentioned which is if you have a talent shortage and you widen the scope of people that you're willing to look at. And by the way, to to Aaron's point too, you know, I think the way we have taught in business schools, things like strategic human resource management are partly responsible for this, right? That we start with strategy, we figure out what capabilities we need to execute those strategies. Uh, Eventually, as we continue that analysis down, we end up with a checklist, right? Of what we're looking for in employees. And uh, the problem here is that those Checklists historically have contained hidden biases, unintended biases, I think, but hidden biases that keep kept us from accessing lots of categories of talent. So, you know, one is. Now, that's pretty straightforward one, I guess, that you fill jobs that would have gone unfilled if you hadn't created a program like this. Another would be finding and hiring talent that is greater than the talent that you would have been able to hire through a normal route. And I'm pretty sure Jose has some examples of this. Uh, there are also, uh, one of the things we've seen out of research, employee engagement benefits. So uh, around these programs, you know, people see the work that's being done in and around these programs as meaningful. Uh, Uh, People want to be part of something uh, in their work life that's meaningful. And and these kinds of programs get interpreted this way. Jose also mentioned another one that comes up big in our research, which is innovation, right? Uh, That I think there's another explanation uh, behind why these programs are increasingly important uh, that has to do with innovation. And that's in, in, in an industrial economy where we were competing based on scale economies and efficiency. It was very important that everybody fit in. Right, that that because any sort of difference resulted in potential friction or inefficiency. And so it caused us in business schools and in business to evolve methods that tried to eliminate difference in friction. The, the issue though, is that in an innovation economy, it's not about that anymore, right? In an innovation economy, uh, you could define an innovation as an, a valuable difference, right? Something different than what we've done or delivered before. In the company's ability to consistently deliver valuable inconsistencies, if you think about it, that's a a reasonable definition for innovation. And so people, as Jose said, who think differently, you know, we can help the innovation process by including people that, that think differently. Another one is process improvements that arise from the ability and willingness to see problems and patterns in processes. So there's a lot of reports of people saying that doesn't work and they're right, it doesn't work. And so they see those patterns and difficulties. Another, uh, there's a whole other category we call spillover benefits and spillover benefits happen when we develop a solution for this particular program, you know, aimed at a, a group of people, hiring a group of people who identify as. Neurodivergent, but then we discover that the solution works better for everyone. Right. And this, uh, I know this is close to Aaron's heart too, that there's this idea of universal design. If we design for the edge cases or the outliers, then it turns out it it usually works better for everybody in the middle of the distribution as well. So, um, you know, one of the common versions of that we hear in our research across companies is uh, managers will say, being a manager involved in this program has made me a better manager. I'm better at managing all of my people now, and partly because of the things I've learned in this program.
0: Oh, that was quite rich. And, and, and many interesting aspects of this one thing that I picked up was there's there's one thing to think about recruitment and bringing people in from a talent point of view and there's another thing to think about what it means to fit in and and you mentioned Rob that Aaron is thinking about the universal design so let's let's go there for a second let's go in, in what it means to have programs around helping people after they've been recruited to actually be included inside the organization and be um a full members of the organizations. So, Aaron, I'll start with you. If you don't mind, uh, help us understand this notion of universal design a little bit better. And then I'll go to Jose to get examples of how how this is actually playing out at SAP and in his programs.
2: So, within the equity and inclusion work we're doing at Ivy, we really are trying to take a universal design approach to that work. And in particular, when we think about neurodiversity, but I think that you have to extend the idea of universal design right from recruitment all the way through the life cycle of the student in our organization. So, through the recruitment pathway, how do you make that process more accessible to people? Because right now, it's a very narrow set of parameters we use to even have people come through our doors. So how do you reform that pathway? And then we're asking ourselves really serious questions about how do you reform what the learning environment looks like? So for instance, participation, what does it mean to participate? So when we think about neurodiversity, we know that there are a lot of different ways that neurodiverse individuals participate with more or less comfort. One of the really dominant ways our classrooms work right now is on participation through what's called contribution, so you speak in, but that's only one pathway for communication. So what would it imagine if we rethought our classrooms that even we had a chat function? So if you are more comfortable participating in a chat, or if you think about it within a work framework through a meeting by using the chat, and you have someone who's in charge of checking that chat to bring that conversation in, there's a space in a way that we've opened up more participation and access within our classrooms. And then when you think about the skills that you're giving everyone within the classroom to think about managing difference, I think you're building more inclusive leaders who will hopefully then go on into roles within organizations and bring what they've learned about that challenge to what they think diversity looks like in the classroom into those places that they go to as careers. So I think when we think, like like Rob said, the basic premise for universal design, we can boil it down to a few sentences, is that you plan for and think about those most complex and vulnerable individuals in your community. And so you deeply get to know them. You deeply get to know where the barriers are for them within your current structure. And you work together collaboratively to think about how do we reduce those barriers together? And I've been doing this work for a long time, and I still don't have a single example of where we we lowered a barrier by working with individuals who felt that barrier. And somebody who wasn't as complex or vulnerable came to me and said, well, now my life is just untenable. I can't do it. So I have never seen it that somebody who wasn't having trouble Create got a barrier because we reduced a barrier for someone else. So I really do think when we work collaboratively and collectively with those voices that can give us hints about barriers, we're really going to make, as Rob said, everyone's life a lot, a lot easier within the organization and increase everyone's access. Thank you, Jose.
0: So um, the idea of, of programs that go beyond just simply recruitment and 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 accessing a broader talent base, but also figuring out how we can include them in the organizations. Mm-hmm. Rob gave us an idea that if we uh, look beyond the efficiency argument and start thinking about uh, creativity and innovation as as one necessary phenomenon of organization these days, what examples can you share with us that how this plays out at SAP and especially in your program, Autism Network?
3: I would like to, to share with you a number of examples that span, I guess, the whole experience uh, from sourcing to a pre-employment training, the recruitment part, also the sustainability of employees. And let me start first with the pre-employment training part, which I think is a very important one. And for our audience, I would like to describe a little bit of the process that we have at SAP. So we have a pre-employment training program where we invite um, individuals, in this case, on the autism spectrum to participate in this training. And and it's one of those um, get-to-know-each-other experiences that goes well, well beyond what we call the traditional interview. Traditional interview, what do you have? One hour to spend in front of somebody with a resume. You have the manager with the resume at hand. You have the individual very nervous trying to answer the questions in the best possible way to try to fit in into the culture and the needs of the organization. So what we have established is this multi-week pre-employment training program. It varies by country depending on the needs of the location. And it's been highly customized for each one of the different entities that we have in the company. But what I can tell you is that through this experience, we, we picked up a significant amount of, of learnings. So let me give you an example of one that is goes in the direction of universal design that Aaron was highlighting a few minutes ago. The training used to be four weeks on site all the time. And we always notice, and you probably will notice this too, that there are going to be some people that are so actively involved in the training, raising their hand, making commentary. And then we're not talking about people on the spectrum. We're talking about everybody. When you have a class, that's basically, you know, you have a certain percentage of people that are very active and certain people that are not so active. What we did, we split up the training in two in two parts the first one was a two weeks online and then the second was a two weeks on site and what we discovered in the online part was that the people that were not so actively participating were much more active in the chat box making commentary or asking questions so what we ended up doing was moving that capability to the physical classroom delivery experience such that everybody had kind of a zoom front end in the classroom And for those people that not were able to participate or not willing to participate because they were more shy, perhaps, now they have the power of expression through this little chat box that allowed them to participate as equals with everybody else, independent of the different personalities. And I thought to myself, how come we didn't have this before? Okay, how come we always had the more outgoing people ask the questions and and make the commentary, right? And this enriched the classroom experience tremendously. And it's something that we say, gee, wouldn't this be good for everybody? In every setting that we have, let me give you a second example. Now, moving a little bit towards the interview part of the process, we've had situations at SAP where uh, going to an interview, again as I mentioned before, you know, can be a challenging experience for people. So what we have done is we have created what we call an accommodated interview for folks on the on the spectrum. And one of the things that we that we ask is that the managers provide topics or even questions ahead of time. I want to throw out something out there here to the audience. When was the last time that you went to a meeting and there was a panel of people asking you questions that you were not prepared for, where there was not an agenda and where basically you were being caught by surprise? Okay, A lot of the interview experience for many people is like that. And I think that what we said, why don't we try to emulate a little bit more the real working environment in which a person on the spectrum or anybody is going to be working in? Why don't we, people, these are the topics that we're going to be addressing in a very professional manner. We understand that the person will prepare. It might be even be a case that we can discuss. The experience has been transformational. And it is one of those things that I believe that if we were to take this experience and roll it out. Out to the entire community, I don't know about you, but in my case, if somebody would have given me the topics and the structure and even the questions ahead of time, I would have been much, much better at really providing not only what I wanted to just provide, but for the interviewer to learn about me and make a more accurate and informed decision about the hiring. So part of the things that we have learned through the Autism Work Program, they have not been fully implemented yet. Mainstream at SAP, but have really, you know, opened up our eyes to say, "What if?"
0: Jose, am I correct understanding that what you're proposing is that for the most part, many of the interviewing processes, and not just at SAP, in many organizations, they're particularly designed for a very specific type of an individual, very specific type of a uh, cognitive behavior, and um, and then they are designed to almost catch people off guard, uh, and then see how people react in, in those situations, but. Taking a step back and, and taking Aaron's invitation to universal design at heart, we will actually start seeing differently how we can design these moments, design these interviews, design these workspaces and and functions for people, for everyone to be included, anyone who is at any part of the spectrum. Is this a correct understanding?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, it's it not only goes through the, the direction of the process itself, let me give you one one more example. I have a colleague of mine who is who is autistic in many people on the spectrum do not have the ability to look at you in the face or in, the, in your eyes and establish that eye-to-eye connection. Mm-hmm. I did not, know, did not know this, but I think that we can make somewhere around 10,000 different expressions with our face, including our ears, eyebrows, nose, et cetera, et cetera. And the processing that that goes behind that, if somebody's looking at you and is a, a detail-oriented person, can be absolutely uh, overwhelming. So uh, when I was talking to to this colleague of mine who's... Absolutely brilliant and a just wonderful human being. He told me in a nutshell, What would you prefer for me to look at you in the, in the eye or for, for us to have a meaningful conversation? And I just will never forget that moment because I thought, I can only imagine this so many times, Razzie, that he has been filtered out of a job because of some of the biases that Rob was talking about earlier. These are things where I believe that our bias are filtering valuable resources out of our companies. We have to change our mindset. We have to redesign our processes and we have to redesign our mindsets Okay, to be able to really look at the talent for what it is and If there is a hard handshake that you would expect for somebody because they are going to be, I don't know, in a customer-facing role, or if there's that ability to smile all the time and so on, yes, that is an important trait for that role. But what if you're going to be doing some other job that does not require that, but still you have the biases to include those things as part of the definition?
0: Well, earlier you were talking about this concept of the uh, spillover effect. When we actually bringing, we're thinking about these programs more intentionally, they have benefits in other parts of it. And one benefit that you uh, you talked about is that it just makes leaders better leaders and managers better managers. I think Jose is just giving us uh, uh, some interesting examples of how. By looking at a way of including uh, neurodiversity at work, our, our mindset, our, our, our mental processes actually become wider and they, they change. Is this what you mean by the spillover effect?
1: Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, along those lines, it's I think it's worth noting that, you know, the way that we approach, you know, when we teach a case about. We have a case about SAP's uh, Autism at Work program. We have another case about uh, Microsoft's and uh, and some other cases still. But when we teach them, we teach them, you know, only partly under the heading of neurodiversity employment. More generally, we think of them as cases about how to manage people and talent. And so I I would say, you know, if you think about the fact that the world is kind of optimized for certain people, and and then there's another group of people, and of course it's a spectrum, uh, so that you may be further or closer, that they go through the world, a world that's optimized for other people. Right. Part of what we're talking about is trying to make the world more open and more optimized for everyone. And one of the things that we teach when we teach this stuff is that we think this is driving us, along with the pressures of competing in an innovation economy, towards a different style of management. Uh, and it's a style of management that perhaps you could characterize by saying it's more individual-oriented. It accepts the person as an individual and asks the question, what do I need to do with each individual to maximally uh, activate their ability to contribute. And that's a pretty good question for people who identify as neurodivergent. It's a pretty good question for people who don't. One of the ways that we put this, uh, and I say we, I'm talking about, uh, there's a gentleman named Torkel Sona who founded, uh, Jose knows him well, founded a company that started things along this direction in Denmark in 2004. And he and I wrote a piece together where we argued that we really have to change the paradigm, right? That in and including some of the labels. So um, the one that we were picking on in this article was human resource management, right? And the the quote that we used was, we said that human resources, that even the phrase, it sounds like there's valuable human stuff that we just happen to keep, can, you know, keep stored in containers called people. And uh, we argued that's, that's kind of like calling the contents of an art museum paint resources, right? And so uh, I think we have to flip the paradigm. We, um, and and there, there are managers in Jose's organization that are doing this. Um, Jose, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he, uh, he was the head of the services organization. And uh, he literally calls his empl- one of his employees on the drive-in from work every day. Do you remember that example? Yeah,
3: Silvio Besa is uh, senior, senior vice president.
1: Yeah, and he credits this program, right? He says, you know, this is when I started you know, thinking I needed to know all of my employees individually. Right. And, and to do that, he, he's got like uh, at the time I talked to him, he had like 500 employees every day. He has like a half hour, 45 minute commute into work every day. He calls one of them and he talks to them about what's the, what's their world. Right. And what what can we do to make their work better, their life better, their improve SAP around what they're doing? And um, and, the, and the, when he finishes after 500 or so, he starts over. Jose, that was kind of stole one of your stories there, Jose. <laughs>
3: no, it's wonderful that you remember. I would have not remembered it, Ralph. Thank you.
0: <laughs> you invited us to think about this as, as opening the world. So I suspect that the conversation we're having is not just contained inside the organization. And if we actually start thinking about this, this is a dialogue about the broader society. Erin, you work at the intersection of organizations and society. So so how can you help us um, help this transition? How might we imagine these types of programs or initiatives and activities that we're talking about encourage positive change, not just in organizations, but the society at large?
2: Sure. So I think that that, it's a complicated answer, but I think it's a partnership answer. So I don't think we can do any of this work in isolation. And I think from the examples that Jose has given us today, you see there's this activation between working with people who identify as being neurodivergent, working with the managers who are going to be working with them, and then working to think about how do we redefine our structures such that access is increased. And I'll tell you too, I mean, for everyone on this call, my son is neurodiverse himself, and that has been... Being his parent has been one of the greatest teachings I've had because he's really challenged everything that I thought I knew about parenting, about patience, about education, about systems. That got blown out of the water when I had to start to really support my son to know himself so that he could be able to access the world that was in front of him. And so I definitely bring him to work every day when I think about the work I'm doing at Ivy. And one of the things that I really think business school needs to focus on is challenging itself to think about what does leadership mean? Because again, I think if we really think what's at the core of who we let in our doors and who we say we're pumping out, all business schools around the world say that they are graduating leaders of tomorrow. I think that's in every single one of our vision and mission statements. Well, my challenge back then as a non-business person, but a geographer is to say, what does that mean? What is the what is the quality of leadership, and how narrow are we willing to say that that definition is? Because as Jose has shown us, there are leaders that sit well outside that median that we have limited ourselves to. And as Robs has said, if we really want to innovate, we have to start bringing in more diverse ways of thinking about problems. I mean, anytime I I I ask my son to think through a problem, he comes up with an answer that I never, with the way my brain works, would have come to uh, an answer for. And because of of his neurodiversity, he has this incredible ability to have a laser focus on certain types of tasks. And when you think about how valuable that could be within a problem-solving team, you have to think about how do we start bringing that in? And so when I think about our classroom dynamics, we also have to start preparing neurotypical students to understand the real deep expertise that neurodiverse students in our classes bring to those team environments. And we have to start activating those. And I think more than anything, we have to start highlighting how important those leadership skills are to solve these big, wicked problems that really face us in the world today.
0: From my perspective, resonates is quite a bit with what Rob was saying earlier about it's a shifting paradigm about leadership. And we're going through the process of actually rethinking management, rethinking leadership, rethinking organizations. And, and neurodiversity could uh, be a very good context for us to start thinking very differently about ourselves not just the others.
1: And, Mizzi, one of the other things I would quickly add to what Aaron said is, I don't know, when I read the newspaper, I think the world could use all the talent we can find, right? Yeah. So, um, anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect you're also referring to this, what, what's called the big attrition these days. Everyone is referring to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, big, big issues, big challenges, yeah. climate change. Sure. Uh, we, uh, we need all that talent.
0: Absolutely. 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 Jose, earlier when you started giving us examples about your program and, and aspects of your program, we started with the recruitment, then we got into the inclusion, and you also mentioned about sustainability. Can we go there, if you don't mind? Can, can you help us figure out what it means to uh, think about um, the effects of your program beyond just the the uh, immediate neighborhood of that inside the organization, the effects that it has in the larger organizations and what it takes for us to not just launch these programs, but keep them going and keep them
3: growing. Absolutely. So that's a a two-part question. The first, uh, I believe, the, the first part has to do with the impact outside of the organization when we launched the program, we we launched it with the vision of bringing in the best talent that we could into the organization. And, and I think that we saw some wonderful results. One thing that I failed to mention earlier uh, was that uh, on the innovation side, we at SAT have... A, uh, a an award that is given to an employee or employees who have created an innovation that is just worth recognizing. We are a company who is in 190 countries, so you can only imagine the amount of entries that we have in in a contest like this. In uh, in 2019, we had a winner, and it was the first time that only one person won the this recognition. In the past, it had been teams of maybe six or 10 or as many as 15 people. Uh, so in 2019, the the person who, who won it was Nicholas Newman. He was hired through the Autism Smart Work Program. He's a neurodiverse program and he won the first place in this incredible recognition. He was flown to our headquarters in Germany and presented this award. I'm going to guess in front of 10,000 people by our CEOs. So that's one of the, the 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 areas again that I want to highlight about some of the great outcomes of the program. But looking outside of the organization, uh, I think it's super important Masi, to to highlight that we did not start the program with the idea of announcing it in 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 and sharing it as as part of the principal outcome with the community. That was a side effect that we, of course, super gladly share with the the community of companies. We've had uh, more than 700 organizations that have reached out to us interested in how to implement a program like this. We have interacted with with high schools, with universities, with NGOs, with government. So this type of program touches so many aspects of society and so many aspects of life, particularly for the individuals and the families that are part of the program. I can give you a couple of examples. I mean, a very tangible one. Many of our colleagues were unemployed when they first came to SAP. I would say in excess of you know ninety five percent. Many of those colleagues. Where perhaps on government services. And, and of course, that was something that the government had, you know, a monthly payment, perhaps of a certain amount or allocation of money to help them support themselves. Now they come to a company like, like SAP, they get an employment. So we are transitioning from, you know, getting funding from the government to one where they are contributing uh, via a tax base to the country, okay? And, and it's a, a very, very important element for the individual because one of my colleagues, I remember telling me, you have no idea how proud I am to be paying taxes. I don't think that I had heard that from anybody that I know telling me how proud I am to be paying taxes. But that's a very deep statement it really tells you about the dignity of work about the source of pride but also about the large, the, the benefit that programs like this have in the larger community we talked to, to to teachers that are uh, high school teachers that have come to sap literally went through the front door went to the reception area and asked who who is running the this Smart work program because we'd like to see if we can learn what you guys are doing so we can bring this back to the high school okay and teach high school students to be successful so they can go to university, uh, those who want, right, or to get a job, you know. So again, the topic of impact in the community is probably one of the larger ones, one of the most rewarding ones, and I think that one is one of the most or the least expected ones that we had when we launched the program.
0: I got goosebumps when you said that, and, and it, it, it actually, it's it's such a human thing to think about. I want to get to this piece in a second, That mm-hmm. um, and the piece is this, that so far we've been making a good case. I suspect a very solid case about neurodiversity in the workplace on the dimensions of employment, on the dimensions of innovation, and on the dimensions of essentially reaching talent to solve some some very wicked problems, as Erin called them. I think that there is a human argument there to be made about this as well. And Erin, Ch- Ch- I actually I would like to bring you involved in that talk in a second. Before I go there, I noticed one thing, uh, Jose, that as you're talking about the progression of your program, I suspect that dimensions or the meaning of success might might have changed. What you considered a success in the program early on has completely evolved. How do you currently define the success of your program?
3: I think that's an excellent question. I think that in uh, from my personal perspective, the success of the program, and we need to recognize that programs are typically uh, transitional elements of organizations to achieve a goal, not permanent fixtures. Uh, so in that light, I believe what is most important for the program is to the extent possible for it to disappear. It, it, why is that? Because by disappearing, hopefully we would have baked in all of the learnings from the program into the standard processes, changing the DNA of the organization. And and I think, in my opinion, what we really want to do with these types of efforts is for them to come in to be instantiated to implement, to transform the organization, and yes, to have a run-maintained office that takes care of continuous improvement. But in the end, I think that by having them baked in into the organization, we no longer will be addressing autism or dyslexia or dysgraphia. We are going to be addressing and accommodating for human. And I think that is really the ultimate objective of this.
0: Totally agree. (laughs) be. Erin <laughs> and Rob, um, and some some uh, last minute com- comments. Erin, let's start with you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think your last point, Jose, I don't know if I can add anything to make it any more um, moving. But I think this work is deeply about what we owe one another as human beings and what we owe all subsets of human beings, because for far too long, we've limited ourselves in defining the value of human beings based on the narrow ways they map to these predetermined ideas, which are deeply biased and have attachments between what we say value and impact are along these very, very narrow lines. And I suppose an impassioned plea as a mom of somebody who I know wants to be productive as a human being and sees value in himself as a human being, I want to work hard so that those places he goes, See his value and say, You belong here, so that he too can pay taxes and feel those deeply valued moments of knowing that he's mapped into our culture and our work and the way we are as a community, rather than being relegated outside of those invisible boundaries that he's never quite sure how they got put up in the first place, but he definitely feels that they're a barrier to access. And so, if we can start by changing the post secondary system, because that's a really big jump to then being career ready, we need to do a heck of a lot of work at the post-secondary level to ensure that the educational and learning environments we provide not only decrease those access points, but in doing so, I think they challenge everybody's understanding and expectation of how actually diverse the world will be when they go into work. And if we don't, Continue to challenge those expectations. I don't know how we're going to make change when we think about the next phase, which is that work and in integration.
0: Thank you, Erin. Rob, Erin um, is inviting us in the post-secondary institutions to uh, to take this seriously and to, to think about our role in shaping uh, future reader, leaders. What advice? Would you have as an educator, as a researcher, for current leaders who are inside the organizations that they want to somehow start on this journey? What might you um, provide them uh, in terms of advice?
1: So, I think at first I would say you know dare to do it. There, uh, not all organizations have been as brave as I mean we have to recognize that companies like Jose's uh, when they um, first multinational that I know of that started a program like this, and that's eight years ago now. You know, I've talked to other companies that you know they they get tied up in fear or legalisms or whatever. So the first thing is dare to do it. The second thing is talk to people like Jose, right? There's actually a growing body of knowledge. Uh, We're trying to develop as part of our project, we're trying to develop intellectual capital around this topic so that we can teach every business school student in the world should understand the importance of this topic and what the contribution can be from thinking about it. So I would say uh, that's another part. I think the last thing, that I might say is just to say um, that there's also a lot more opportunity to do good along these lines, so this is this is actually trending very favorably. I think a lot of people have followed the the example of SAP and Jose Velasco, but the, but I think the other thing to realize is that number that I started with eight hundred million to one point four billion is a really big number, and we've really just gotten started. And so uh, you know, there's a lot more work to do. Especially, I mean, Jose and and company, Microsoft. There've been a lot of software engineers hired. There have been a lot of uh, data analysts and uh, cybersecurity analysts and so forth. But we've been interviewing companies that are doing great things, uh, you know, with uh, first frontline manufacturing employees who are also really good at what they do, right? And it's, it's not just something for the tech industry. It's not just something for kind of high skill level jobs. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity here. Rob, your invitation, uh, dare to do it. Is, is
0: very, very valuable, and I'll join that. Rob, Erin, and Jose, thank you so very much. This has been an incredibly generous dialogue that you've had and quite insightful. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. We'd like to extend further thanks to our guests, Jose, Erin, and Rob, for taking the time to share their insights and experience with us. Additionally, I'd like to thank Melissa Welsh, our Associate Director of Alumni Relations at Corporate Development, for her tireless efforts behind the scene to bring these currents in learning events and episodes to life. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe for similar content in the future. If you want to learn more about neurodiversity in the workplace, we've provided resources and links in the blog post on our website. You can also visit ivyacademy.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram using the handle at ivyacademy to view our upcoming events, services, and programs. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you with us for the next episode.